righty, just kind of get us on the same wavelength again, so we're thinking the same way and be in the right frame of mind. Uh, we just finished chapter 3, which included chapter 2, that was uh, charges and criticism and, and blessings uh, to the different churches, dealing with things on an earthly plane, and now as we move into chapter 4 and also chapter 5, very similar chapters, we're going to be dealing, things from, dealing with things from a heavenly plane. And as I told you last week, chapter 4 and 5 is kind of a buffer to strengthen those who are going to be reading what's going to start taking place in chapter 6 and going on through most of the rest of the book of Revelation, some of the things that are going to be happening uh, to the Christians that were living in the first century. So there's a couple things that, that Jesus, as he inspires John to write things to these seven churches, that he wants to make sure he sets the record st- straight. And last week we talked about that basically chapter 4 and 5 relate to uh, John chapter 14 and verse 1 in what way? It's about heaven, but what's the two aspects of heaven he wants, he wants to really Drill into their heads. All right, God is on his throne, and Jesus died for me. There you go. That's basically it. Uh, John 14, 1 says, um, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Chapter 4 is, Believe in God. Chapter 5 is, Believe in me, or believe in Jesus. Chapter 4 deals with God being on his throne. He's powerful. He is the one who is really in charge. Chapter 5 deals with the redemption of how that Jesus Christ came to mankind and saved, our, saved us from our sins, and he is the only one worthy to do that. And so that's the image that is supposed to be portrayed both in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Uh, it's a vision. It's something that you're supposed to be able to visualize. As I told you before, we don't get bogged down in the details. There's no way to know everything that's described here. There's people who have tried to guess, and you get 20, 100 different guesses. But don't miss the big picture. The big picture is God is still in charge. That's the theme of chapter 4. And Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's the theme of chapter 5. And that's the thing that's supposed to keep us going, that no matter what happens, um, you keep giving God the glory and keep your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All right, so last week we talked about how in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, after he had written these things to the churches of uh, uh, southern Asia, he says, he looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. Now, how many people think there's a, literally, a literal door in heaven that you can open? No, we know that's not the case. And that's the nature of the things we're going to be seeing. We don't think that God is literally sitting on a throne looking at people. We don't think the other things that we're going to see in here are literal, but it's to paint a picture for us. We've got to get that in our heads as we study the book of Revelation, especially as we start moving to some of the sections we're moving into now. But the image of a door being open, as I mentioned before, is the idea that John's going to get a peek behind the scenes. Um, The the veil has been moved, if you will. John's going to get a glimpse of what's actually going on behind the scenes that people here on earth don't know is going on behind the scenes. And so that's the kind of the image we want to see. 
And in chapter uh, 4 and verse 2, we made mention that the first thing that he saw when he was in the Spirit, it says in verse 2, Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Um, the throne of God, and this is obvious what's being talked about because what's going to be, we're going to be reading a little bit later in this chapter. The throne of God is a very prevalent thing throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, the throne of God is mentioned in every single chapter of the book of Revelation but three. It's not mentioned in chapter 2, and it's not mentioned in chapter 8, and it's not mentioned in chapter 9. It's mentioned 38 different times in the book of Revelation. The throne of God is important. Now, why is the throne of God important? Why is it so mixed all through the book of Revelation? All right, who's really in charge? What throne would they possibly be thinking about living in this day and age? The physical throne of who? The emperor. Domitian. Um, that's the one that's causing them all the trouble. So this idea that, that Domitian's really not in charge, that God is in charge, is very important. And so we're getting a glimpse now as we start moving through chapter 4 into the throne room of God. All right, what's happening in the throne room of God? And when he looks at this, looks at, it says in one set on the throne, one has been... It should be in italics in your Bible because it's not in the original language. There was something on the throne, but the idea in the Greek is he can't make out what it is on the throne. And so we get to verse 3, and what he saw on the throne looked like jasper and sardin and an emerald. And we talked about this last week. What in the world could that possibly represent? Precious stones. What we're looking at is precious, Okay. Something of great value, okay? Um, sometimes in the Old Testament especially, um, the writers will use something called andromorphisms. That's a big fancy word, but does anybody know what andromorphisms is? It's giving God human attributes in order to describe him. Like sometimes we'll say something about the hand of God. Well... Does God really have a hand? No, God is a spirit. Jesus says that very clearly in John 4, 24. So I think it's interesting right here at the very beginning when, when John is describing the throne room of God and he sees something on the throne of God, he's, I think it's, he, he's very particular that he doesn't give him any human attributes. Instead of what you see there is something very precious and unique. Because we need to understand that God is not a man. God is a spiritual being. He's not like the men who are trying to hurt and persecute and kill the people that are living during this time. This is something very precious. And we talked about how there's a rainbow around the throne. And we talked about how that could be talking about the mercy of God or talking about how God always keeps his promises and how God has the power to even destroy the whole world if he wanted to. Because all those images come to mind when you think about a rainbow. And this is all just review, but I'm trying to get us called up because I, you know, we didn't get into the chapter very far. And I believe we stopped at verse 4 last week or started getting into it. But it would be helpful as we read this, start picturing these things in your mind. So the first thing you picture in your mind there's a throne, okay? So that's going to be at the center of everything that we see. The throne of God's at the center of everything you see. Now we're going to have a circle around the throne in verse 4. 
And it says, around the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. They had their heads crown, had on their heads crowns of gold. So the next image we see in our minds, if you see that throne in the center, surrounding it in the first circle that surrounds it is twenty-four elders, and King James Version says that uh, upon the seats... Does anybody have anything different for seats? Seats is not a good translation. Thrones. The actual word there in the Greek is thronos, which is the word for throne. So these four elders, 24 elders, were sitting on thrones. They were wearing white raiments, and they had crowns of gold upon their head. All right, so picture, if you will, some elderly gentlemen... And there's 24 of them. They're surrounding the throne. Uh, they're actually sitting on their own little, little thrones, if you will. There's no other way to describe it. They're wearing white, and they have crowns of gold on their head. Now, we talked about a little bit last week. What could the possible meeting of the 24 be? All right. So number of ways of looking at this. Of course, I think it might have been Michael brought up the fact that there were actually were 14 apostles. There were only 12 but that's the very nature of apocalyptic language and visions. It doesn't have to be precise. In fact, a little bit later on in the book of Revelation, it's going to be talking about the city of Jerusalem, and it's going to have the 12 apostles as the different parts of the different gates. Knowing full well, there's 14, but the idea is not to get caught up in the details, but to think of the picture that it's painting. And Roger painted us a very nice picture here, that under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant, God is in charge. Whether you lived under the Old Covenant or lived under the New Covenant, God's going to take care of you. Whether you live under the Old Covenant or live now under the New Covenant because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, you're going to be saved. There's all kinds of different pictures that might, make, might give you comfort if you're reading this. And remember, that's the nature of this type of literature is to what in your mind will give you hope, give you comfort. And different things mean different people. There are some commentators that that make an allusion to the fact that the 24 here has to do with the priesthood and the different courses of the priesthood. But we can get into a discussion about that, and I'd lose everybody immediately, so we're not going to do that. But I, I prefer the idea that this is talking about, regardless of the covenant, that God of the Old Testament, he's the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament, he's still the God of the Old Testament. That's the thing that I think we should think about. But I also like, as we look at this, the picture that it paints of the people sitting around the throne. Notice they are sitting on little thrones, in a sense, because I would not imagine they have the exact same size throne as the main throne in the middle. Why are they sitting around on thrones? I think that's significant. And why would that be significant to somebody who was reading this letter, especially if it was somebody who was one of the seven churches that had just been written to? Yes, Julie. All right, they were leaders, obviously. Yes, Kelly? All right, other people have made it there. Would you say, well, we, could we change it this way, that maybe they were reigning with God now? Yeah, there we go. In fact, if you look up just a few verses into chapter 3, how chapter 3 ends, um, notice what it says in verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Here is a picture of what Jesus had just promised the churches. 
that you will reign with me. If you overcome, you will reign with me. And here's an example of somebody doing that. This representation of both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they too are now reigning with God. Now, by reign, we don't mean the fact that they have power to issue rule and stuff as a king, but when we think of someone being a part of someone's reign, that means that it's a part of someone's kingdom. And they are a part of the kingdom because they overcame. And notice not only are they sitting on thrones, but they are wearing white raiment. And once again, this is an allusion back to some of the things that were written to the churches earlier in chapter 2 and 3. And white raiment means what? Pure. Their sins have been forgiven. They, they are in heaven. They are in a holy state now. You remember God being who he is. He, can't, he cannot tolerate sin. Sin has to be separated from him. It's an abomination to him. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, those who are now victorious are wearing white gowns. They're not, they are in a holy situation with God. They're not separated from God. In fact, as we look at this picture that's being painted, they're the closest ones to the throne of God as you circle it. And they're also wearing golden crowns. Now, there's two Greek words in, in there's two words in the Greek for crown. There's diadem, which means a, a kind of crown that a king would wear. And there's the crown of victory, Stephanos. That's where we get the word Stephen from, um, which means a crown of victory that would be given to one who had finished the race or overcome the battle and that type of thing. So we've got the reigning with him. They have been purified through him. And now they have received the crown of victory here in the throne room of God. And you can see how this, uh, somebody living in the first century, this would give them um, uh, some comfort and hope and encouragement. All right, before I leave verse 4, anything anybody would like to add? Verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thundering and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven uh, spirits of God. All right, divide this verse in two places because it needs to be. First of all, we, we're looking at the throne room now and this vision that John is having in the spirit. And all of a sudden around the throne, well, not all of a sudden, but out of the throne uh, came lightning and thunder. And, and the King James has voices, but it's the idea of, of noise and, and cataclysmic type things going on. Does that bring your mind back to anything? All right. What was going on on Mount Sinai? If you go back and study when Moses was on Mount Sinai and the people were at the base of Mount Sinai, when they looked up at Mount Sinai, what did they see? Thunder and lightning and all kinds of commotion going on. And so this is once again an illusion uh, in a vision back to the Old Testament and the power of God. The emphasis is on the power of God in here. He's on his throne and it's a powerful throne. And then it talks about uh, seven lamps, really in the Greek is seven torches, but seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, if, you, if you know your Old Testament history, especially how the tabernacle and the temple was set up, uh, there were seven lamps or seven torches on the outside edges of the, of the holy, most holy place. And this may be an allusion to the fact that you know, the throne of God is the most holy place, and just like the entrance to the most holy place had these torches, so does the throne of God. And, of course, there's the allusion to the seven spirits of God that we learned about in the first chapter. And, of course, the Holy Spirit uh, is the idea of enlightenment. 
and um, the, the Holy Spirit is what gives us the Word of God, and so maybe it's a confirmation uh, in this vision that, that what the Spirit tells us uh, comes directly from the throne of God, but still the picture continues of this idea. So you've got the throne, you've got the 24 uh, elders around it, you've got all the lightning and thunder around the throne, then you've got the seven lamps that are before the throne surrounding it. So you've got circles, you've got circles that keep going outward, outward. And then in verse 6, it says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass likened to crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. All right, so we, if we had a drawing board up here and we were painting things, the next thing we're going to see that before the throne, and there's some discussion about exactly how this, is, this was all underneath all this, or if it was another circle. I like the idea of a circle because it, it keeps making it cocentric, if you will. But surrounding the throne now is a sea of glass likened to crystal, a crystal clear sea. What in the world is that all about? Why is that image put there? All right, very good. In fact, there are some commentators who think that this is an allusion to the firmament that one time covered the world. Um, If you go back and look at your uh, Old Testament history and the creation of the world prior to the time of the flood, there was a firmament that covered the earth, and it was like a, a, basically like a dome of water. And um, water, of course, you can see through, and there's the picture of God in heaven looking through the crystal sea, if you will, down on earth to see the activities of man. And that might be what's going on here. Once again, that's a picture that paints in Michael's mind, and that's something that gives him comfort that God is always looking and watching through this crystal sea. Then, of course, that works. Uh, There are some other people who believe that this crystal sea represents a separation that Because of who God is, God cannot be defiled by that which is unholy, and therefore this this crystal sea acts as a barrier, and it's crystal because it's pure as God is pure. And if you think about it, what what is the barrier, what divides land masses and nations today as far as the continents? The oceans, or we can call them seas, or whatever you want to call them. They're the great separator. And so there are some people who believe that what's being talked about here is the emphasis of the fact that God is separate from that which is not holy because he is all holy. And they make reference to the fact that later on this text, the idea of him being holy is nailed over and over and over again. Okay? Don't know for sure. But once again, we don't, know, we don't have to know what the crystal sea is all about because that's not what the emphasis of the chapter is about. The emphasis is on the vision of the fact that God is on his throne and he's the one in charge. This is all just like icing on the cake, if you will. You don't have to know all the different details. And you get caught up in the details, you you sometimes miss the big picture. Um, But then... In the, uh, around the throne, and you've got another circle coming around the throne, it says that there are four beasts. Some translations have four creatures. And um, usually when we hear the word beast or we hear the word creature, 
what do we normally immediately identify in our mind? Oh, an animal. What are you going to say, Jamie? A monster, yeah. Especially if you see this one has, has four eyes. I mean, full of eyes before and behind. It means he has eyes not only in the front of his face, but like a lot of mothers in there, he had eyes in the back of his head too, where he could see everything. But you need to understand that the word itself in the Greek, the word for creature, it can mean not only something that is like a beast, something that you might think is mean and, and terrible, but also it can mean something very beautiful. Did you all know that I'm a creature of God? And I'm a nice-looking guy, aren't I? No. I'm... The word creature doesn't necessarily mean something bad. But here's the nature of this type of stuff again. If you're, the picture you paint in your mind when we start describing this, these creatures is something that is of a terrible or a mean type of thing, if that gives you comfort because you want to think about the power of God, then that's fine. Or if the creature you paint in your mind as you start seeing the description here is something that's amazing and beautiful, and that's what's giving you comfort because things in heaven are beautiful, then it works either way. Once again, this is to give us hope and comfort. But So there's going to be four beasts now in this circle, and they have eyes before them and behind them. Why do you think they have so many eyes? Be able to see everything. Um, God is certainly one who is omnipresent and omniscient. He's everywhere. He sees everything. And that, of course, would be something that is, uh, would give people comfort. And this idea of the eyes doesn't stop. God doesn't miss anything. But in verse 7, we have a description of these different beasts. And before I get into that, anybody have anything? I don't want to stop anybody or squash anybody's questions or anything. Yes, ma'am. That's right. And if there's someone who literally has eyes in the back of their head, it'd be God, wouldn't it? He doesn't miss anything. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets that, that nobody knows. He knows everything about you. And that's the idea here. Anything else? Good comment. All right, so we look at verse 7. Now we're going to figure out what these beasts look like. Verse 7 says, the first beast was likened to a lion, the second beast likened to a calf. Some tr- translations have ox. Anybody have ox in their translation? You got ox? Um, it literally could go either way in the original language. It could be uh, an ox calf even, if you want to go uh, ox hyphen calf. And this third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was likened to a flying eagle. So... You've got four different beasts here. One looks like a lion. One looks like an ox or a calf. It's definitely a bovine. And a man and and an eagle that flies. Now, first of all, and I'd be surprised if you know this. Michael might might know this. I think he may even mention something about this other day. I can't remember now for sure. But what we have here in verse 7 is a composite of when Ezekiel saw the throne of God and Isaiah saw the throne of God. And they're kind of brought together into one thing here. So you've got an allusion to to Old Testament. But yet at the same time, um, I think these have some symbolism into what perhaps they uh, could mean. Um, For example, when you think of a lion, what do you think of? Majestic, power, king. Uh, As far as the natural world, what do you think of? King of the beast, okay? So he's kind of the one in charge of, of the, the creature of the world, if you will. 
Now, he's literally not, but we know that think, people think of lions, you think of him as being over the jungle and all that kind of thing. That's why they call him the Lion King in the movie. You remember seeing that movie? Don't you? Okay. You don't want, you want to sing the song. Uh, but anyway, um, when you think of ox, what do you think of? Strength, and, but keep it within the, in, within the animal kingdom. What do you think of? You think of domesticated animals, okay? Man is obvious. Man is the crowning creation of God. And then you've got the eagle who occupies the air. And so some people think that this is an allusion to the fact that all of nature bows down to God at his throne. Now, whether it be the beast of the, of the jungle, the beast of the fields, the beast of the air, or God's crowning creation, all of God's creation should glorify him. And that's what Psalms 19 and verse 1 basically says. All right? Float. Absolutely. And you're on the same level of some brilliantly scholarly men who have thought the same thing. Because they think that what's going on here is the lion represents the power of God. Um, The calf, they believe, represents the sacrifice and service of God. They believe man represents the intellect of God. And they believe um, that the eagle represents God's ability to be everywhere. So this may be an allusion to more attributes of God. And certainly that's an emphasis that's throughout this particular chapter. Now, what's really interesting to me is if you go back and study early church history and read some of the writings that you read in the, in the first century, they allude these four things to the four Gospels. In fact, there are even some old churches that have stained glass windows with these pictures in them representing the different Gospels, okay? And let's see how would you would do if you were trying to do what they did as far as uh, relating them to the different Gospels. Let's start with the lion. Lion represents power. What Gospel do you think would closely relate to the power of God? I'd be surprised if you picked up this right away, but I'll throw it out there. What? John. He's right. Because how does John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and He was with God. All things were made by Him. The emphasis at the very beginning of the book of John is on the power of God. All right? Next we got in here, and you know, you're, not, you're not going to be counted off if you don't get this, but you've got uh, the calf, which represents... Who said Luke? Oh, if you've done some studying already... All right, why does it represent Luke? But if you remember how Luke starts off, it starts off with Zacharias. And Zacharias offering a sacrifice at the beginning of the book of Luke. And so uh, people in the the first century said this gospel represents, this image represents Luke. Now this one I hope everybody would get right away. Which gospel puts forth the idea of man? Especially the fact that Jesus was a man. Matthew. Because how does Matthew begin? It begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, tracing his lineage back, showing that he was a man. And, of course, that only leaves one, of course, and that is uh, Mark. 
And the emphasis on Mar- and Mark is on the Holy Spirit and therefore the idea of the eagle flying around. Now, whether that is what John had in mind here, I don't, don't know, but that is something that some early church fathers held on to. Now, I just thought that was interesting. That's no, you're not going to get charged for that extra information, but I just thought you might uh, like that little anecdotal type of thing. But any questions or comments? Yes. Well, the fact that Jesus Christ was faithful even unto death, he was faithful to the Father. Um, you remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, if there's any way, let this cup pass, but not my will be done, but, but yours. Earlier in the book, he, Jesus, uh, in chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, he talks about how the, uh, you can overcome because I overcome, and, and it was all about, about faithfulness. So maybe that's where they got that from. Good. All right, so we're moving on, and um, now we see that something else about these beasts we didn't know before. It says, and the four beasts, each of them had six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within, and they, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, is, and is to come. So we got some more eyes thrown in there, perhaps emphasizing the fact that God um, can see everything. The fact that there are wings means that God can be everywhere, you can see how this would be a source of comfort in this vision that we're having because you're never, ever alone. God sees what's happening to you. God is there with you. Um, when Jamie was a little girl, I know she doesn't remember this, but when I was in school, we lived in a house that um, her bedroom was upstairs and our bedroom was downstairs, and she didn't like that much, too much. And so I'd have to go up and comfort her from time to time, saying, don't be scared. We're right down there if you need me, if you need us, and you know your daddy. I wouldn't let anything happen to you. And I said, besides the fact God is here with you, and Jamie and her young innocence, she was like three or four at the time, said, well, where is he? Is he in the walls? Well, yes, he's in the walls. He's everywhere. Um, and that's the emphasis of this with the four bees. They had six wings that were full of eyes. God can be everywhere, and he sees everything. But here's the thing that's interesting about these beasts. What were they doing? When we're in the throne room of God, if we have the opportunity to be in the throne room of God, what should we be doing? Worshiping. When um, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, is in the throne room of God, what's going on there? There's worshiping. And And when Isaiah... Uh, sees what's happening here. He realizes what a sinful person is, and he says, I'm an unclean man of an unclean uh, nation. And he realized that he was in a bad situation here. But even notice how in the words that they say puts the emphasis on who God is. First of all, they refer the things that they're saying continually. They keep saying it. It never stops. This is never ends. This is always the case. Don't you forget this is always the case. First thing they say is holy, holy, holy in describing God. What does it mean that God is holy? Don't be shy. He's above all. I agree with that. All right, he's without sin. Um, the word holy, hagios, means sanctified, set apart. He's set apart from sin. He's set apart from everything. He's God. There's nothing like him. Um, Now, this is just conjecture. Nobody knows for sure, but why do they say it three times? All right, that's what a lot of people think. Is that what you're going to say? That 
the entire Godhead, the entire Trinity is holy. Whether it be God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit, they're holy. Jesus is just as sinless and sanctified and holy as God is, the Father. And the Spirit's the same way. They're all part of the Godhead. And that might be what is being on there, or it might just simply be they're saying it three times for emphasis sake. And there's some numeric value there from Greek, I mean, from either Greek or Jewish numerology that we're missing. We don't know. But the emphasis is that he is perfect. And then they refer to him as Lord God Almighty. What do you think the emphasis is in that particular phrase? Calling him Lord God Almighty. What were you going to say? All right. Doing God, Jesus and God together. He's Lord So he's in charge, he's God, so he's in charge, and he's almighty, he's all-powerful. This is probably an emphasis on the omnipotent factor of God. You know, we always talk about God having three major attributes, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Omnipotent means all-powerful. God's all-powerful. He's perfect and he's all-powerful, but notice what's emphasized now in the next thing they say which was and is and is to come. What does that mean, which was and is and is to come? We've seen this before in this book. He's always been in existence. That's one of the major attributes of God. If there ever was a time that God didn't exist, I'm sorry, he's not God because he had to come from somebody, and that's God. God has always existed. Now, if God is someone who was and is and is to come, what kind of attributes would that give him? What would that give him the ability? If he looks at time, eternity, he's, he's able to be whether, whether it's the past, the present, the future. He's everywhere at once. What attributes could you ascribe to that? Mighty. Oh, he's definitely mighty. But what did I just say were two more attributes of God? He was omnipresent and omniscient. In other words, he's everywhere, and he knows everything. Well, how can God be everywhere and know everything? Because he is the one who was, and is, and is to come. God being a spirit, he doesn't look at time like we look at time. He doesn't dwell in this dimensional world that we live in. He dwells in a different world, a spiritual world, where he obviously can be everywhere at once. He obviously can see everything at once. And that's the emphasis as we're looking at this throne room of God and we've already seen these, these concentric circles coming out of all these different things that emphasize his power and his ability. It's no wonder that these beasts bow down before him and continually say, you're perfect, you're all-powerful, you're everywhere, you're all-knowing. Now think about what that would mean to somebody living in the first century. When it seems like nobody knows the trouble they're dealing with. Well, God does. He's on his throne. He's the one really in charge. And he's powerful enough to protect you. And he's powerful enough to see everything. And he's powerful enough to be with you right now. Even though you may not think he's in the walls or wherever, he's there. And that's why the beasts are praising him because of of what he's able to do. Oh, we're running out of time. And then it says in verse 9, And when... Those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. 
Verse 10 says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So as we start finishing up this throne room scene of God, we move now to these four and twenty elders that are the closest to the throne. And what do they do? Well, they're worshiping him. And as they worship him, they cast their crowns toward him. And whenever I read that, I immediately think of a religious group called Casting Crowns because that's where they got this from. Why are they casting their crowns? Literally, the image is they're taking their crowns off their head and they're throwing them down at at the feet of the throne. They're not worthy. All right? And the emphasis is where did they get those crowns? From him. This is not anything they did. Once again, to emphasize being in the throne room of God one day when we go to heaven, it's not going to be because of anything we did. It's going to be because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We'll receive the crown of victory. But the crown of victory was given to us by God through his grace. And so literally they worship him and saying, we're not worthy of this. We're so thankful you are so, you're God. And so this crown that I'm wearing that you have so graciously given me, I've got to put it at your feet because everything that I am or will be is because of you. And so once again, there's an image being pictured here for us, but then you get to verse 11. I'm speeding this up a little bit because I'm trying to finish on time this time. It says, they say, thou art worthy, O Lord, in the King James Version. I bet somebody might have something a little bit different in their Bible. Anybody got anything a little bit different? What you got, Corbin? Our Lord and God. Why the King James left out the God part, I don't know. But in the Greek, there's two things here. O Lord and God. Literally in the Greek, it's curious kai theos, which is an interesting word in the Greek. Interesting combination of three words in the Greek. Kurios is the word for Lord. Kai is and. And theos is the word for God. In fact, um, most of you are familiar with the word theos because it's part of uh, everyday language when you say theos. Ah, I'm not going to try to say the words now. But anyway, we're getting off, getting off track here. This word is a title. And it's a title that would have been familiar to people who were living during this time. Because guess what this title was? This was the title that was given to Domitian. He wanted to be referred to as Curios Kai Theos, Lord and God. That's the title he wanted as Emperor of Rome. In fact, if you weren't willing to proclaim that the emperor were these things, guess what happened to you? That's when the persecution started. That's when you were kicked out of your local guild That's when you couldn't buy groceries. That's when you were hauled off the jail. That's when your children were taken away from you. That's when your property was taken away from you. That's when you might be killed. And so these 24 elders are saying, no, Domitian or any other man on earth is not curios kathios. Only you, God, are that. And the reason why you are the one that is the only one that is Well, in fact, the text goes on. He says, Thou art worthy, O Lord and God, to receive 
In the original language, and I don't know how many of your translations have this, but in the original language, before glory and before honor and before power, there's a definite article. Only he is worthy to receive the glory and the honor and the power, making it specific that all glory and all honor and all power goes to him. And the reason they set up as their evidence is the last part of the verse, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, I know we're running out of time, but I don't want to leave this. What in the world are they emphasizing here? He says, you created all things, and everything that is created was created for your pleasure. What are they saying about God, and what are they saying about everything else? Created to worship Him. In other words, everything else is underneath Him. There's nothing else that compares to Him. Everything's underneath Him. And this also is the main qualifier that separates Him from man. There's many things man can do, but man cannot create. All man can do is rearrange. Now, we talk about somebody making, like Roger making that swing for Glenn. That was a beautiful creation. But, Glenn, but the thing he made for Glenn, he took materials that were already there and rearranged them and made something. Man can rearrange that which is already created and make it into something else and make a creation, but only God can take something from nothing and make it into something. And that's what separates him from man. And everything that he has created was created for his benefit. So how dare mankind not give him the glory and honor that he deserves? So as you leave here tonight, you should have picture in your mind now this throne room. And you can get bogged down in the details of what's happening here, but the emphasis is God is on his throne. He is in charge. He is the one that's only worthy of our worship. He is the one who's the only one who is the kurios kai theos, the only true Lord and God. And we've got to stop because time is up. But thank you for your comments and attention.